Well, thanks, everybody. Uh, the first service was uh, much more uncomfortable for me. I got all sweaty now. Uh, 100-year-old building, it takes like a month to get the AC turned on. Um, so, yeah, it's hard to believe that we've been here for five years now, um, and I'm trying not to get it to be a total wreck. I've been like deeply uncomfortable about the sermon all week, which y'all will find out why in a couple of minutes. Um, and so I'm trying to keep it together a little bit. I guess I do a couple of things I, I want to say. Um, the first service was miserable right after this because I was a mess and I had no idea what to say and was totally caught off guard. Uh, and so I've had to think about it for the last hour. Um, the, the first is, uh, it wasn't quite as eloquent as uh, Lachlan put it, like, who, who wants to do this great work? Um, it was more like I got a phone call driving to my other job and was like, hey, everyone's mad and it's shrinking and we don't know what to do. You think you want to try it? And I was like, ah, let me talk to my wife. Um, and uh, I guess it's worked sort of to this point. Um, and so the fact of like seeing what's happened here over the last five years uh, in our church, the way I feel like we've, we've been built up and our, our roots have been strengthened and ways we've been able to love and serve this neighborhood. If you step back and look at all the ways that we've been ingrained in the, in the life of this corner of the city now and all the opportunities that we have to serve people and what we're becoming known as, uh, it's been such a privilege. Um, and so, uh, you know, this job's moved me into therapy a few times. Uh, it's moved me into extreme weight gain and weight loss and hair loss and uh, a lot of other things. But uh, at least vocationally, I can't imagine doing anything else. And it's been, a, it's been a sincere privilege getting to watch what's happened here and to be a part of it. So thank you guys for uh, joining the work. And also some of you have been here, like in the early days, it took a lot of grace, right? Like we were all kind of figuring it out together. And so I just really appreciate, I've always felt loved and, and supported here. Uh, and so I'm grateful for that because not all of my friends who do this feel that way. And then also I can't look over there because my wife's sitting over there, but um, the the cost that's been on her for this to happen has, been, has just been significant. And um, she doesn't get, you know, like the gifts that I get or the praises that I get. And uh, I wouldn't have been able, I don't know how I would, I don't want to do this life without her. And I certainly don't know how we would have done this if I wasn't going home to her. And so she's been a, a gift and a blessing to this church in ways that I think only Jesus knows. So I love you. Thank you. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it, it's, yeah, it's been amazing and awful all at the same time, and God, um, God's been faithful in the midst of it, and so, yeah, maybe that's what I'm trying to say. Thanks for the front row seat I get on what God's doing in our city, because that's what I feel like I have, thanks to you all. Um, so, a couple of quick announcements. This is the, what I struggled with in the first service. It's like, so do, do I do a sermon now, because I'm all, like, confused and emotional? Uh, so, two things that, I, read the back of your bulletin, because there's lots of it great stuff happening. Um, and there's info. You don't have to like read it right now. It's fun to read the back of your bulletin. Everyone's like, okay, yes. Um, <laughs> that's like, yeah. Uh, so one of the neat things about our church is uh, we help, we have 105 souls that consider our church their home that are all around the world for the sake of God's kingdom. Um, and we had a couple of members go visit. We don't, we don't say the names of the couple that's over in the Horn of Africa uh, because it's illegal to be a Christian there and like Christians are in danger there. Uh, we have a picture of them. And if, if you want to know their names, we can tell you their names when we're not talking in a recorded thing. Um, so this is them. 
Uh, and this is our, that's Jill and that's Carissa. Uh, they went out to visit them. Um, and this is a Toyota Land Cruiser right here, <laughs> which is like 70% of why I want to go be a missionary because they have cooler Land Cruisers over there. Um, but so when we send somebody out, there's teams of people here to make sure they're cared for, that they're prayed for, that we provide counseling, that we meet material needs. And uh, the, these ladies went to visit them with a whole mess of stuff, uh, presents, um, just practical supplies that they needed. And, and we stay in pretty regular touch with them because uh, may, if you're a missionary kid or like you grew up with someone whose parents were missionaries, you know it's easy to feel forgotten when you're far away. Um, it's easy to feel isolated, especially when you're in somewhat hostile places. It's not like they're gathering with a few hundred people on Sundays. And the, the consistent report that we get from uh, our sent ones out there is that they don't feel that way here. Um, and so we see them as extensions of our body, and we want to continue caring for them. Uh, and I think God wants to raise up more folks from our church that will go out for the sake of Jesus. But they came back with a letter, and I just wanted to read it real quick for you all as, as a ways of encouragement. Um, they start by saying, to our dearest brothers and sisters at New Albany, you know, we're still a family, and they still feel that we're their brothers and sisters. We're overwhelmed by your love, kindness, and generosity to us. The Father's grace and mercy for us is so evident through you. Thank you for your faithfulness in God's work here. The gospel goes forward from New Albany to the Horn of Africa through your prayers, your support, your care and faithfulness to point us to Christ. Thank you for the goodies from home. It was an overwhelming encouragement. Oh, how we love and miss you. So for those folks who helped uh, bring some stuff together or, or got it there. Or if you've been praying, if you've ever put money in the bucket on Sundays or online, thank you uh, for your support and, and what, you're, what you're doing, how you're helping the mission of God go forward. Uh, and it's a privilege to partner with them. And if they're watching, way to go. We love you guys. Uh, and then also next week, we get to go back to normal time. Anyone sick of daylight savings time? Call your congressman. It's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> But next week, we switch it back around, and it's also All Together Sunday. Uh, so we try to grab a few dates throughout the year where we worship as a whole church family. So that means practically, if you have a child, listen to me now. We're shutting down kids next week, which means all of the children will be in here. So you've got an insert about that. Don't forget the time. And if you go to try to check your kids in next Sunday, you'll find a locked door. Uh, but it's really sweet. This will be a, the third time we've done this. Is that second time, third time, something like that? And uh, it's kind of amazing. It's far less chaotic than I, we, we pitched the idea. And I was like, no way, this is insanity. And it's been kind of beautiful. Um, so check that out next week. Uh, and we're in a bit of a transition week. This week, we've been going through the parables of Jesus. And Next week, we're transitioning from where we are now in these stories about the kingdom of God, that's life with God, next week to the judgment of God, parables of, of judgment. And we're putting the kids' ones there so we can ease into it, right? We're not going to fire in brimstone yet with all the four-year-olds in the room. Um, and we've been trying to prepare for this conversation for a few weeks. Uh, I've yet to meet someone that's like, hey, I'm new to your church. I'd really like to find some Bible studies on judgment, you know, <laughs> like, or like, what are your favorite resources on judgment? Um, it's not a popular conversation here. And in light of what Jesus has to say for us, uh, it, it isn't an easy conversation either. Uh, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna read this story real quick. We may just stand up and sit down long enough. So just, just listen to this uh, real quick. It's from Matthew 13. It'll be up on the screen. Um, Jesus says, here's another story. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. 
But that night, as the workers slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat. Then he slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. The farmer's workers went to him and said, Sir, the field where you planted that good seed, it's full of weeds. Where did they come from? An enemy has done this, the farmer exclaimed. Should we pull out the weeds, they asked? No, he replied. You'll uproot the wheat if you do. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm already shook up because you guys were nice to me. And uh, my friends will tell you I don't handle kindness very well, um, which is part of why I'm in therapy or was for a long time, right? Uh, but I'm also, like I'm preaching to you today as someone who's been deeply disturbed by this text. Uh, it's a famous parable, the wheat and the weeds. Uh, you may have heard it preached before, and it's been, I don't know how else to say it, uh, profoundly unsettling for me this week. And I don't claim to have it all figured out. Uh, if, I, if I do what I think the Lord would have me do this morning, um, most of us will leave a little bit confused and a little bit ruffled with the, are you saying this kinds of questions? I don't know all the conclusions uh, of what we're about to say. I hope we're prepared for the conversation, though. Um, the last few weeks, We've said that uh, the kingdom of God is, it's a relationship, it's life with God where we stand up under his word. That, that's where we, we take the words of God and we treat them as though they're true, even when they're un- uncomfortable, even when they're difficult. Uh, we've said this will require patience and perseverance. Um, we've said that over time, this will produce power in us uh, so that we can endure and thrive in the mystery that is life with God. And it's very important Uh, that we at least have these categories in mind when we come to the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Because in it, Jesus is giving us very difficult but necessary lessons about evil. Uh, And one of the most popular, profound questions, we're not going to be able to uh, deal with all of this, the problem of evil. It's an age-old problem in your bulletin. Under the notes section, there's some links to Right Now Media videos that you can watch that deal in length with the problem of evil. Um, If you're like, what is Right Now Media? That's in infos in your bulletin too, and it's free, and you can sign it up or stop at the welcome table and we'll help you do it. Uh, The problem of evil is essentially this. If God is so good, why are there all these messes in the world? If you're like, what messes? I would encourage you to turn on the television, right? Like, I mean, and and not, this is not at all funny. we live in a society now where we're concerned about sending our children to school. So if, if God is so good, why would we be worried about sending our children to school? How can these things keep happening? And Jesus is, is, I think, trying to give us a framework in this parable of how we understand this reality of evil. Um, so shortly after telling this story, to a huge crowd, Jesus pulls his disciples aside and explains to them what's going on in this parable. And it's pretty intense. So he says that he's the farmer. So when you read the farmer, the master, the sower, that's Jesus. Uh, He says that the field is the whole world. You'll you'll see some themes showing up in these agricultural parables that we've looked at the last week. So the the field is the whole world. Uh, the, The good seed, the wheat, those are citizens of his kingdom, sons of light. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. Um, The evil one is the enemy, the one who sows, that's Satan. Harvest is judgment day. So it's like, okay, here we go. We're getting 
Like we're getting serious now. Harvest is judgment day and the harvesters are angels. It's like, what in the world is going on? Uh, The farmer's servants, I think much like the disciples, as we'll see, and much like many of us, are confused. Where did these weeds come from? I don't remember sowing these weeds. And it's, it's, a, it's their version of saying, it, why all of this evil? If the field was good and it was planted properly, why all of this evil? What's it doing here? And here is the master's response. An enemy has done this. An enemy has done this. This is Jesus's response to the problem of evil. If God is good, then why all this evil? And Jesus is saying, an enemy has done this. Uh, We're wading into deep waters here now. Um, the, The Bible as a whole will describe God in many ways. You can go listen to a series we did a few years ago on the attributes of God. What does the Bible say God is like? Uh, all the artwork in the hallway right outside these back doors, those are artwork inspired by different attributes of God that we talked about. Uh, the Bible, in essence, says that God is all good, uh, that he is all powerful, that he is all knowing, that he is all wise. So if you think of good, if you think of power, if you think of wisdom, uh, if you think of uh, knowledge, God is all of those. He's exhaustive and perfect in, in all of those. And yet to resolve the tension of the problem of evil, people will typically try to sacrifice one of these attributes. They'll undermine one to try to make sense of it uh, from our point of view. And so, and this is rampant in our society. You, You see it everywhere. So you'll hear things like, maybe God is all good. So we'll affirm God's goodness, but he's not all powerful. Which means he wishes things were better, but he's just not strong enough to make it so. You with me? He's all good, but he's not all all powerful. Or you'll say, God is all powerful. This is terrifying, but what if he's not all good? Maybe he's good. He's just fine with awful things happening. So we have this all powerful, tyrannical dictator who's going to do craziness on the world. And it's like, you didn't read your Bible. And so he'll tsunami your neighborhood or something like that. Uh, Or God is all good. This is the most present one in the church today, as, as far as I can tell. And the, and the effects are devastating over time. So God is all good and he's all powerful, but he doesn't know what's coming. He, he doesn't know the future. And he's just kind of doing his best as events unfold. Or maybe the most popular uh, way of resolving the problem of evil in our society is to say, well, God just simply doesn't exist. So we'll, we'll disband the notion of a God who's all these everythings and say, there is no God. And so what is just is. Um, And I would say there are serious, fatal problems in each one of these techniques. Uh, So if you stand under the word of God, if you are a Christian who says Jesus is Lord, the first three are right out. they, they They don't work because you have to do serious violence to the word of God to make those things fit. 
So if you want one of the first three answers, like God is good, but he's not all powerful. God is powerful, but he's not all good. Or God is good and powerful, but he's not all knowing. If, if you want one of those, you must throw out the Bible. And if you throw out the Bible, you also throw out Jesus. And, and not just like the historical Jesus in terms of this evidence that he exists, but also the basis of his teachings. Like Jesus wasn't just willy-nilly throwing out ideas. He was rooted in the scripture. So you, you lose Jesus if you lose the Bible. Um, and if you throw out Jesus, you lose pretty much everything else, right? Uh, what about just going with no God? That's a tempting offer for many people. Uh, and it, it, it reveals the deep irony, inconsistency in much of what our culture believes these days or affirms. So this is a little bit heady. Hang with me now. If you lose God, you lose truth itself. If you lose an, an objective, consistent, transcendent reality then nothing is good or evil. It, it just is. Because, and, and here's how this will play out. If there's no God, we have to stop saying something was good or evil. Because if you say it is, eventually the question will come up, well, says who? And so we can look at a school shooting and say, well, that is evil. Well, maybe not to the guy who did the shooting. And so what do we say? Well, I say it was evil. But he says, well, I say it was good. Well, who's right and who's wrong? And then we devolve into a society that says, whoever has the biggest guns, they're the ones who decide what's right or wrong. And I'm telling you guys, this has killed millions of people. That, like there is no ideology that has killed more people than that, than, than saying like there is no transcendent right or wrong. It's just kind of based on what we think at this time or at that time. And when we say, well, who says that's right? And the answer is, I do. <laughs> like, the red flags have to start screaming because that ideology has killed more people than anything in human history. From that point of view, nothing is good or bad, right or wrong. It just is. About the strongest statement you can make, if you believe that, is, I would prefer that not to happen to me. We're all just random accidents. Nothing means anything. So who cares anyway? Just do what you want. And so Jesus comes and he walks this tension by saying everything the Bible says about God is true and an enemy has done this. A lot of times in churches, we'll, we'll try to subvert this tension by going another way uh, and use churchy language. And we'll say things like, what about free will? Um, which very few people know what they mean when they say free will. Uh, we'll say things like, well, I can do anything I want, whenever I want, however I want. I have free will. It's like, well, no, not really. Like, we can't go out in the parking lot and fly, right? I, can't, I don't have free will to make my hair long overnight. Like, to be human is to be constrained, is to have limitations. That's just like, that's just self-evident, right? Like, you can't change the way you look just by willing it to be. You don't have free will. And then you get to passages in the Bible, and not just like a couple of them, man. You get things like in Isaiah where God says, I am the Lord your God. There is none like me. I declare the end from the beginning, saying all my purposes will stand and I will do all that I please. Like over and over and over. God's like, I'm in control of this ship, right? Nothing surprises me. Nothing is thwarted from my plan. And it's like, oh my gosh, well then what? And then he also says, and you all will be held accountable for what you do with your life. What? It's another amazing tension that's in the scriptures. How do you resolve that? 
What I would say to you is it's very dangerous to add words where the Bible is silent. And I mean dangerous, like people suffer when we do this, when we speak, when the Bible is silent. So when standing under God's word means being satisfied when the Bible says what something is, even when we wanna know why or how it is. So here's what I mean, what is? God is entirely sovereign and you are responsible for your actions. So believe that's true. Live like that's true. How can that be true? You're not God. I don't know. I I just don't know. Uh, Our present life in God's kingdom requires us to look at evil, to, to look at the problem of evil and evil itself when it's manifest and say, an enemy did this. So that's, that's the first big lesson he's trying to show us here in this parable. An enemy did this. Second, evil will be here a while longer. Um, the, the servants asked the master, if you notice, should we pull up the weeds? Totally reasonable thought, right? We see something terrible happen and, and we jump to, what can we do to make sure this never happens again? So the servants see the evil in the field and they say, let's, let's uproot it. Let's, let's tear it up. Something real similar happens in Luke's gospel. Uh, Jesus preaches to a whole town and they reject him. And the disciples are all mad afterwards. Like, what are we gonna do about these wicked people that just rejected the message of Jesus? And here's what they say. They go to Jesus and say, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? Like, which I've prayed that before, right? Like, (laughs) you know, if you were best friends with Jesus and someone did you wrong, it's like fireballs, you know, like... (laughs) Should we do it? And it's understandable. Evil, wicked people. Isn't, isn't, especially when you define yourself as a good person, don't we want to eradicate evil and, and, and wipe it out? Jesus rebukes his disciples for this in Luke and the farmer does the same in the parable. He says, no, you're, you'll uproot the wheat if you do. Let both grow together until the harvest. Which remember is judgment day, the return of Christ. Jesus is saying, like, listen, um, if if you want to eradicate the weeds, it would cost us the wheat too. If you want to wipe out evil, it'll wipe out good at the same time. Until the day Jesus returns, the wheat will be entangled with the weeds. In other words, evil will be a present reality until the return of Christ. Despite our best policies, Despite our best program, despite our best activism, evil will still be with us. Because, like, I'm on a tangent here, so sorry. Uh, You know, God tried this once, wiping the whole thing out, and he found one righteous man. And I love how Christians will be like, Noah, the most righteous good man ever. God wipes everyone out. And have you ever dreamed of that? Like if it, was just, if it was just me and my family, the world would be way better. And like our kids would be wonderful and we would just fill the, the earth with good people. Well, God tried that. And Noah, a few days later, a short time after the world is flooded, he's drunk, passed out naked in a tent and something weird happens with his kid. Like go read the story. So this notion that we can just get rid of all the evil and then just hang on, because here's the reality. I'm not saying people are only evil or all evil. I'm just saying, if you wanna find evil, look for it in the heart of human beings. And this is true in us. This isn't just the extreme cases because what do you, someone, maybe this is just because I have a big SUV now, but like a little Toyota Yaris tries to cut me off on the highway and I'm like, oh, I wish you would, sucker. You're like, I'm just, you know, like if, I, if the wind blew, right? And I just nipped him a little bit, we could spin him out. You're like, or you ever, you have a bad meeting with your boss and you lay in your bed just 
scheming of what you could say to nail him, right? Like, or you know you're having the conflict with somebody. And so you play the conversation over and over in your head about how you could just destroy them and, and planning for everything. Like you, there's all kinds of ways that evil just bubbles up in our hearts. And sometimes it's so heinous and it's so awful that it does end up on the nightly news. It does end up on CNN. Life in God's kingdom requires us to acknowledge that until the return of the king, evil will be with us a while longer. And then finally, we won't understand evil. Uh, the, the plant here, that's the weed, is the plant Darnell. That's what is actually referenced in, in the scriptures. Um, if you're a plant person, that is lolium temeliolentum. Uh, I, got, I got teased a little bit last week for my, my yeast reference, I guess. So I just wanted to make plant people uncomfortable again. Uh, Hopefully, I pronounced that poorly. Um, <laughs> so you're like, wow, who cares about what the plant, what the scientific name of the plant is? Here's what's important about this specific plant and why I think the Bible and, and Jesus is specifically mentioning this plant is that when it's growing, it's almost indistinguishable from wheat. Um, it, it looks almost identical to wheat, particularly as it's young. So implied here by the masters that the servants won't really have the skill to know one from the other. The, the weeds look just like the wheat. And so he says, wait, let them both grow. And, and we have to accept it won't make sense to us, that, that distinguishing won't always be obvious because frankly, we don't have the skill for it. Superficially, you don't know the human heart. Right? Have, have we not heard stories about someone who looks good? Uh, you know, the great pastor who's doing this amazing work and because the church is growing, obviously he's godly. And then they find him doing something awful. Uh, and you're like, what? How like, we don't always see what's going on in the heart of a human or what drives someone to do the things they do. And more profoundly, we can't understand the mind of God. God lets us know this. My ways are not your ways, right? Like my ways are above your ways. We have a whole story about this in the Old Testament. It's, it's perhaps the oldest story from the Old Testament in terms of when it was written down. And it's, it's the story of Job, a life marked with suffering. It's probably a lot worse than anything we'll go through, hopefully. And, and Job says, why? Like, a very understandable question given what he'd lived. And we don't necessarily see God rebuking the why, like it's okay that you brought this question to me, but his response gets to like around chapter 41, 42, and God's basic response to Job is like, listen, man, I'd be happy to talk to you about the problem of evil once you've created your first universe and managed it for a few billion years or however long he's been doing it. Um, and Job is like, point taken, um, and he repents, like, and he's satisfied in that. And, and the point isn't to make us feel, well, it's a little bit to make us feel dumb in the sense of like, we can't understand all that God is up to. He's in control of a whole universe. Um, but that maybe more profoundly, like life won't always make sense to us. And there aren't neat, rational answers for everything we go through. And, and God makes it explicit again here in the Bible. Back in Deuteronomy, he says, the Lord our God has secrets known to no one. We're not accountable for them, but we and our children are accountable forever for all that he's revealed to us. Uh, so to, to put this another way, there's some secrets that belong only to God. There's some things that will only make sense to God and we're not accountable for them. So like the, the simple example is people will poke holes at Christianity. And if your worldview is shaped by the exceptions and not the rules, 
then you've got deeper problems that you're not aware of. Like have the courage to face what's really going on. And here, I'm on a tangent again, ripped on coffee a little bit. Uh, Here's what I mean. Someone will come to try to blow up Christianity and be like, well, what about the Papa Johnson tribe in, in New Guinea that live in the trees or something? And there's only 40 of them and they've never heard Jesus. And it's like, do you want to go talk to them? Like, do you want to go share Jesus with them? No. Oh, that's right. Because you don't, you don't love them. You're not actually concerned about them. You have an agenda of trying to go after God. What's he going to do with them? I don't know. That's God's business. Not mine, unless you want to go talk to them. In which case, Go talk to them. Or the problem of evil. How does this sort out? I don't, the secret things belong to the Lord. It's, it's not mine. I will not be held accountable for mysteries that are beyond my understanding. You will not be held accountable for mysteries beyond your understanding. We are not to force answers that God doesn't provide. Instead, we're to ask, what does faithfulness look like? How do I respond in light of this? We cannot fully understand or eradicate evil, but it is ours to live as Christ's citizens, citizens of his kingdom on this earth. So like that's your intro to the problem of evil. And now the rest of the sermon gets real simple. What's it look like? And the way I would think about it is stand in an inevitable kingdom, stand. Uh, There's another tension we don't have time for. Maybe in the next 20 years, we'll be able to talk about it in the Bible. Uh, I would call it contemplative urgency, okay? So there's a right nowness about the kingdom of God. There's an immediacy about it. But Jesus didn't say, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you an anxiety disorder and lots of stress, right? Like, there's, a, there's an immediacy about it. So think about Jesus in the beginning of Mark, healing a town's worth of sick people and demon-possessed people. And then the next morning, way more people come, and Jesus is like relaxing out in the woods, praying. They have to have a search party to go find Jesus. Or Paul, when he's talking about spiritual warfare in the Christian life, he says, put on the full armor of God so that you can, anybody know? Stand. He doesn't say so you can go like, <laughs> go after it, right? I was about to say some like, open up a can on these people, right? Like, go get it. He says, no, put the armor of God on so you can, you know, work hard to prepare so that you can stand. Jesus cares more about any of us than the state of the world. And people had to go look for him because he was out resting in the woods, This is hugely important given what we've already said. Now, look at the servant's first response when he sees the weeds. Sir, the field where you planted that good seed is full of weeds. Where did they come from? Uh, This is typically our response. Their first indication is to ask why, not what. Uh, Their their first efforts are not directed at finding out how they should act in face of evil. Uh, They're trying to look for an explanation that they won't be able to understand. Uh, So, To stand under God's word means to live like it's true. It means living according to the mystery is far more important than investigating it. I'm gonna say that one more time. Living according to the mystery is far more important than investigating it. And you do this already. Do you know that, and I've said this before in sermons, so free repeat for you. Uh, We don't know why people sleep and what exactly happens when we sleep. It's like one of the genuine mysteries of medicine. We're not sure what's going on. Uh, what happens if you don't sleep for like three or four days? You might die. Like if you don't sleep for a week, you'll surely die. So is it more important to stay up all night investigating the mysteries of biology and how we sleep? Or is it more important to go to bed? <laughs> like, go to bed, uh, which is not to say don't consider it. Don't, we should have medicine doctors and scientists looking into that stuff. Like we don't know how gravity works, which I think is awesome. Like 
is it gravitrons? Is it centripetal force? Is it, we're not really sure. We just know it's a bad idea to walk off a building. And so is it more important to not walk off the building or to investigate gravity? To not walk off the building in case you're wondering. So the point is, when we face the mysteries of God, we ask, how do we live in light of this? Uh, it's more important to live according to the mystery than to investigate it. Uh, so one, don't let the weeds distract you. Don't let the weeds distract you. Did you notice that the weeds didn't interfere with the ability of the wheat to grow? Uh, that the farmer is unconcerned with the wheat affecting the weeds. Um, and there, I, I wanted to do the whole sermon on this, but I spared you. Uh, did you notice the enemy leaves the seed alone? So he drops the seed off and then he disappears. What does he know? Uh, I think he knows about the power of this weed to distract, confuse, and make the children of the light do crazy things. I think he knows that the odds are good that the children of light will be so distracted by the weeds that they will do his work for him. If they're so concerned about the weeds, they'll start pulling them up and they'll just kill each other off. In an effort to rip up the weeds, they'll rip up the wheat. But did you notice whose problem the weeds are according to Jesus? They're the problem of the master and the harvesters, uh, Jesus and his angels, which is to say, not you. The light is too strong for the darkness to overcome it. So don't let the evil in the world diminish your view of God or shake your confidence in the inevitable goodness of Christ's kingdom. His kingdom will not be stopped. It won't be kept from coming. The kingdom of God is not threatened by the presence of evil. So don't let the presence of evil distract you from what's good, true, and beautiful. Two, let the cross encourage you. Perhaps the greatest temptation that evil brings is to believe that God simply doesn't care. How many times does this need to happen before we just conclude God is uninterested, um, that it doesn't matter to him? You can't say this from this parable. In fact, it's, it's the master's love for the wheat that allows him to endure the weeds. Because he says if we took care of evil, we would damage the good Two, God won't risk the children of his kingdom for the sake of eradicating evil. So when the Bible or God himself seems silent, look to where God speaks loudest, which I would argue is the cross of Christ. When you feel that God is asleep on the job or he's left or he's unconcerned, look at the cross because there you see God willingly entered our suffering. He endured evil, the full weight of it. He doesn't have an academic understanding of pain or loss or suffering because he's lived it. So the, the cross of Christ demands you reject the notion that God is unconcerned or he's uninvolved. In, in the face of evil, draw near to a God who knows suffering. We have a God who cares, who gets involved, and who's taken responsibility. So ultimately, and this is where it's just so simple and yet confusing. Um, so I think the ultimate invitation is for us to stand amongst the weeds. Um, at the cross, we learn God uses ugliness, to create beauty. No one, as Jesus was dying, said, we win! It wasn't the Death Star blowing up, right? For the sake of the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, meaning he flipped it on its head. So what looks like death would be led to life. Jesus takes tragedy and turns it into victory, and his is an inevitable, never-ending kingdom. And he's trying to show us that the master will deal with the weeds. So what do we do when we look at evil? This is where I've been very uncomfortable all week. Be faithful with what God has revealed to us, what he has spoken clearly about. So do we, how do we respond to evil? Well, the scriptures will tell us, uh, don't, don't 
respond to evil by doing evil, but overcome evil by good. And, and this, so this is where I'm legitimately confused and uncomfortable. Um, you know, we have, a, we have a long span of human history that says war begets war. Or as Jesus would put it, if you live by the sword, you'll... And history has borne that out. Um, we have yet to see in human history violence end violence. Instead, violence breeds more violence. And Jesus says, the people of my kingdom, we overcome evil by doing good. How do you respond to hatred? What should you do towards those who hate you? Love your enemies. You know, Jesus takes this so seriously that he says, stop calling yourself a Christian if you hate your brothers. If you have anger in your heart towards your brother, what does Jesus say? You do not love God. I mean, that is a big deal. But what about all this confession I had? And he's like, he just calls you out on it. You have hatred in your heart towards your brother. You can't love God and do that. What is Jesus's response towards our enemies? Well, for your enemies, you should pray for them. It's hard to hate somebody you're praying for. What do you do when someone hits you? You turn the other cheek. And then our squirrely American Christians will say things like, well, you know, he says with the right hand, and that's like a sign of disrespect because he's backhand. And so what's really talking about is more like a personal struggle. Or he's actually saying, like, if someone hits you, let him do it again. What does it mean? I'm not really sure. There's obvious political implications. There's way more obvious personal implications. But nowhere do you see Jesus saying, my people will overcome evil by doing more evil. Sin is never eradicated by sin. And if, if you really need an itch for like an action scene, Jesus says he's coming back on a horse with, a, with blood on his robe and a sword out of his mouth and thousands of angels behind him. So it's like his army's way tougher than yours anyway. And, and he says eradicating evil is on him. It's his responsibility. What is ours? We stand. We face it. We don't shrink back from it, and we overcome it by doing good. And, and like, you guys, this is the core of the gospel, what Jesus has displayed for us. Our union with him frees us to live radically different. And every week when we talk about communion, we just gloss over this, this phrase because it's so familiar. But, you know, Paul recounts it by saying, on the night Jesus was betrayed. Pause there for a second. What do you do when someone betrays you? What do you fantasize of? What do you dream of? I mean, most of us, it's some version of like never again or else, right? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Never again. But instead, knowing full well what was coming, Jesus takes a loaf of bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. Do you see like I will overcome evil with good. I will enter into your suffering. I will take it upon myself. And now when you eat this bread, remember what it is I've done for you. After the meal, he took a cup of wine And he says, this is what seals your relationship with God. It's no longer your performance. It's no longer whatever it is you think you need to do to please yourself or please God, make yourself pleasable before him. It's the blood of Christ shed for you. And so now every time you eat, every time we gather, ground yourself in this so that you can go out into the world set free by the gospel to live radically different, to overcome evil with good. You know what Jesus says? You'll know, the world will know you're my people by the way you, and man, Christians have done some ridiculous stuff in the last week in their church services. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Like, 
You, you, they will not know you're my people by your protests. They will not know you're my people by the billboards. They will not know you're my people by who you condemn and what, they'll know that you're my disciples by the way you love one another. And oh, if we took that seriously, like y'all, it changed the world before. And it, and it could happen. It, it could happen here. We could be such a beautiful picture of life with God to the world around us. Safe to love, safe to receive love, be loved. And it would it would change our world. Our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward, or we'll have stations in the back, rip off a piece of bread, dip it in wine or juice. Um, wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it. Use whichever you'd like, and they'll be gluten-free to my left, your right. And if you're not a Christian, I just encourage you, um, either explore Jesus or just give up the notion of anything being evil at all. Have the integrity to say, if I'm going to bail on Jesus, I have to bail on this whole idea that there's good and evil at all. Um, or you can receive Christ's invitation to come to him and be a force for good in this world, uh, to be part of the light that pushes back the darkness. And if you're a Christian, remember who you are and stand in it this week. Uh, I'll pray for us, and then Christians, uh, you can come participate as you're ready. Let's pray.